Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Housing Matters, the Vancouver Real Estate Show. I'm your host, Stuart McNish, coming to you from the studios at Old Boy Productions, specialists in the development of casts like this one. Today, we're looking at rental, the lack of rental, the myriad obstacles in the way of developing new rental properties, the City of Vancouver's efforts to address the issue. It's complex. There are no easy answers. One thing, however, is clear. The signals coming from governments leave developers wondering how to get involved or if getting involved is even worth it. Joining me today are Dan Fumano of the Vancouver Sun, who has an excellent grasp on the market and on Vancouver Council's strategy. Coming up later in the show is David Hutniak of Landlord BC, who says the rental crunch is common to the entire Lower Mainland. He comes at the issue from the landlord's perspective, a perspective that is endeavouring to find solutions to the situation, trying to understand the rules and regulations that make investing in rental uh, a hard call. I also want to give a shout out to our sponsor this week by letting you know the much anticipated public sales opening of Ventura Abbotsford has arrived. A collection of 70 condominium residences conveniently located close to downtown. Come early and enjoy tacos from the famous Tacofino food truck where you learn about Ventura Abbotsford, the future of Abbotsford at today's prices. Learn more at VenturaAbbotsford.com. So now let's get started with Dan Fumano of the Vancouver Sun. Dan, Welcome. Thanks, Stu. You've been writing some interesting stuff about the uh, rental market in Vancouver over the last couple of months. Um, And your most recent article about uh, who can afford so-called social housing is quite interesting. interesting. And and you sort of start off by saying, well, depends on how you want to define social housing, which seems to be a little bit different than that from the city of, of Vancouver. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, basically what happened was the city just earlier this month, a couple of weeks ago, they released a big uh, progress report, uh, kind of they're two years now into their 10 year housing Vancouver strategy, mm-hmm. which set these aggressive new targets. They described them as ambitious, aggressive new targets for housing, how many rental apartments they want to produce each year, how many laneway houses, townhouses, social housing units, all these different kinds of things. And when they did their progress update, they also released this, it was almost a 200 page data book, which was great to have access to this stuff. Uh, but obviously it takes a little bit of time to go through it. <laughs> um, so on the, you know, the first day they released it, this had missed my attention and I think, and everybody else, but the, the kind of headline the city was coming up with was we've approved a record number of social housing units last year. You know, we, we didn't hit our targets in some other areas like, 
apartments and stuff like that, rental housing, but we had a record number of social housing units for 2018. But then when you get deeper into the numbers, you can see that they've broken out the different social housing units by income band. So the amount that are affordable for people basically on welfare, people earning less than $15,000 a year, or I should say households earning less than $15,000 mm -hmm. a year, because it could yeah. be two people. Right. Um, and then, so there's a bunch of them that are affordable for people on that, uh, you know, social assistance. Yep. Basically, most of those are the temporary modular housing units that were funded largely by the province. Right. And so, we see them popping up in a variety yeah. of different spots around the city. So the city approved 520 some odd of those in 2018. And those are all full. And now the city's hoping to get money for to do more, more. To yeah. do more. So there's that. And that's, I think, largely what people might think of as social housing is housing for people who are on welfare, disability assistance, you know, owned by the city or a not-for-profit or something, or like the feds or so. Yeah, right. So, um, and then there's also people, uh, households. I should again, households earning less than thirty thousand dollars a year, and uh, you know, you can see that being social housing as well, because that's not a big income, especially if it's two people and it's living in the uh, city of Vancouver or Metro Vancouver. That's be a hard way to make a go of things. Yeah, you don't have any money at thirty thousand no. dollars a year. So, so then there was a certain number of that, but then what was interesting was that. You could see that a lot of the units of social housing, actually, if you added it up, it was most of them, was only affordable for people making between 50 and 80 grand or 80 grand and up, I think to around 100 some odd grand a year. And they're not super high income households. No. But it's worth noting that the median income for a renting household in Vancouver is only about 50,000 a year. So non-social housing or, or characterized as non-social housing, that's basically what you're making as a uh, as a salary, yeah, Com combined for the household. Yeah. So anyway, this is a, sorry. This is a long way to get to it. But basically, when we looked at the numbers, and I was curious, I was talking to this uh, lawyer who specializes in municipal law, and she was saying she thinks it's because of the way the city defines social housing. But you'll have to talk. I, she said you'll have to talk to the city and try to clarify this. Mm -hmm. I was talking to Natalie Baker. She's this lawyer who specializes in municipal law, and. She said what she thought the definition was, but she said, you, should, you better talk to the city and figure out why so much of this social housing is only affordable for households earning more than the median income, basically. Um, and so we talked to the city and they explained how the definition works. And it is different than I think what a lot of people might imagine. So what did they tell you? So the way the city of Vancouver defines social housing is, and it's been like this for some time, I'm not sure exactly how long, but um, the way they define social housing is if it is owned and operated by a go some government, some level of government or a nonprofit, mm -hmm. and then 30% of the units in the building, so if you've got a 100-unit apartment building, 30 of those units are secured at, uh, they call them housing income limits that are set by BC Housing, so set for sort of lower end of lower income. Now, there's still, that's not like being affordable to people on welfare. It's not like the shelter rate, but these are lower end below market rental units. So 30% of the units, 30 units in this 100 unit building have to be secured at that rate. Now the other 70 units can be rented out to moderate income households. And that those income limits are set and updated periodically also by BC Housing. But they still fall under the social housing exactly. banner. So all 100 units in that building, even the ones, you know, the $1,700 a month studio apartment or the, 
I can't remember how much a two bedroom goes for, but it's it's 2,500 or something like that. It, so they can be renting for rents that seem like they're fairly close to market mm -hmm. rent. Um, and they're only affordable to households that are at or above the median income level in Vancouver, but every unit in that building still counts as social housing. So when the city of Vancouver did this sort of thing saying, hey, we hit a record number of social housing units, it was true, as far as I can tell. But the way they define social housing is probably different than I think some people might have realized. So when you were doing this story, did you get the sense that the city was meeting a need for those people who actually do need that below market uh, social housing? Two things on that, I guess, is, yeah, I mean, the city's trying. And the city, it was the province that funded most of the temporary modular housing right. construction. I think some somewhere in the order of $80 million dollars to build those first 600 units mm -hmm. of temporary modular housing just in the city of Vancouver. Yeah. The province is spending money that, uh, on modular housing in some other municipalities as well around the province. Um, but the city kicked in the land or found the land and in many cases provided the land, which obviously isn't cheap. And the city also, under the previous council, changed the bylaws to get these things approved very quickly and get, mm -hmm. them, get them up and running fast, get them developed and licensed and permitted quickly. So the we, city we should helped make them that for happen. doing that. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And, and, and they faced some backlash from the community, especially early on. Mm -hmm. Now, I guess a year and a half, two years later, you don't hear as much backlash about modular housing. I think it's integrated into a lot of communities. I think a lot of people don't even necessarily know where it is because it just looks like housing. Yeah. And so the city wants more and I'm not, I mean, that's just anecdotally, but I'm not hearing as much backlash in the city of Vancouver around that. Uh, interestingly, we're hearing sort of in Maple Ridge now, a big community backlash to this idea of supportive housing and modular housing. But so the city, it's the city by everyone says at the city, the councillors, anti-poverty activists, and everyone all agree, there's a demand for way more of that housing in Vancouver. Way more. So we've got 2,100 or something homeless people counted in the last uh, homeless count last year. I guess we'll probably be getting the new count pretty soon, I think, in the next few weeks here mm -hmm. for for this most recent year. But um, so, you know, there's more than 2,100 Vancouverites who are currently living without a home. Uh, we got 600 units of temporary modular housing so far, and or a little more than 600. Um, so there's, yeah, the city has done what they can. The province came to the table. The feds provided a little bit of money. Yeah. Uh, I think about 3 million total. Mm -hmm. um, and so the city's hoping for more along there. So the city's trying to do that. So that's for the lowest end. And then, I mean, talking about need, those people that we're talking about, those households that are earning 50000 a year, 70000 80, 100000 a year, those households, there is a big need to provide rental housing for those households too. Right, because we know that the vacancy rate is like less than 1%. Less than 1%. It's been less than 1% for a long time. Yeah. And, and those are really important households for your city. Like these are people, you know, it could be, uh, a, a public school teacher living on his or her own. It could be two sort of two office workers living together, earning a combined income of about ninety thousand a year. It could be a police officer, a cop living alone, right. with or maybe uh, a, a, a full time nurse and a part time worker living together, something like that. Right. So these are people you absolutely need in your city, and right. the market on its own, the pure just pure market housing isn't doing enough isn't doing enough 
on its own isn't able to do enough to right. build rental housing that's truly affordable for those kind of medium income right. people. And these are actually fairly good. Again, the median rental income, the median income for a renting household in the city is only about 50,000. Citywide, the median income is only about 60,000. Wow. For homeowners, I think it's a little upwards of 80,000. But even that, right. when you think about it, how expensive owning a home is, an 80,000 household income, again, it's household. So often it would be yeah. two income earners. Yeah. So actually, you know, that brings up an interesting point because the development community says, yeah, we want to build rental, mm -hmm. but there are, it, it appears that there are so many obstacles in the way of, to get that housing to market in a timely manner and then to justify it over a period of time with uh, rental increase restrictions and yeah. so on. Maybe we we really are looking at social housing being in that mix uh, because the yeah. private sector can't meet that need. That's, that's kind of what it seems like where it's at um, is – I actually recently had a conversation with Larry Beasley, coincidentally. Yeah. He's former chief planner of the city of Vancouver. And he's he's just written a new book, and I saw an advanced copy of it. Yeah. Um, and in it, he talks about, uses a term that I wasn't that familiar with. He talks about semi-market housing. So we're used to talking about non-market housing, like yeah. government-owned, non-profit-owned social housing, uh, SROs or, you know, the social housing, we think of non-market housing. Then we think of market housing, yep. you know, condo towers being built by developers, high-end detached houses, things like that. But he talks about semi-market housing, this idea kind of in the middle, the city or some level of government is providing some kind of incentives, mm -hmm. but it's not full non-market housing. Um, but there's some kind of incentive there to get the market to build housing that can be affordable for people who, households that don't earn two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars $300,000 a year. And so I was talking to the city's assistant director of housing policy, Dan Garrison, because that, that was who I was trying to get the city to explain. Why, why are so many of these social housing units only affordable? Explain the definition to me. And he was great. He provided me a lot of time, a lengthy interview to explain how everything works. And he said he did understand the criticism that some people might say, well, a household earning 100 grand, if, if this home is only affordable to a household earning 100 grand, maybe that shouldn't count as social housing. He said he understood that criticism, mm -hmm. but he said this is just kind of where we're at. There's a relatively new thing in Vancouver that households earning that much would be living in what we classify as social housing. Right. And I asked him, I said, you know, a year from now, three years from now, am I going to be talking to you and, uh, and we're going to have families that earn... 300,000, 250,000 that are living in social housing? And he said, he hopes not. But maybe. So we're at a time where we need innovative thinking, yeah. right? And, yeah. uh, and so in the midst of all of that, you also do a story about uh, uh, the the proposed development on Broadway that's going to go up. And there's neighbors who are going, whoa, 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 hang oh, on yeah. a second. You're inviting the ghetto here. And and yet, as we talked about the, the, the true you know, definition, I think that most of us think about as social housing, uh, the uh, temporary modular housing, there's one half a block from here. I've, yeah. I've never heard a single problem no, from it. No. Uh, there is this not in my backyard sense, despite yeah. the fact that we all know that we need to come up with creative solutions. Yeah, yeah. I'll, you know, everyone who opposes these kinds of projects, and I'm not saying their concerns aren't valid. It, a lot of these they're understandable and widely held concerns about mm -hmm. some of these developments. But the recurring thing you always hear is people say, oh, I'm very much in favor of affordable housing. I know we need more affordable housing. It's just this location right here near my house is the wrong place for it. Um, that's, you hear, that's what you always hear. And, yeah, they, I mean, there's these two in Kitsilano, which are – they're not modular housing for sort of the most no. vulnerable 
lowest end, kind of lowest end of the housing ladder. They're not sort of for people on social assistance. These are moderate income rental projects, kind of for people earning between, I think, 30 and 80 grand a year. So it could be just service industry workers, lots of just average kind of, again, median income kind of people. And they're facing some staunch opposition from homeowners in the area. So there's the one on Broadway on the old Denny's site, where yes. Denny's, the 24-hour Denny's used to be at Broadway and Birch. Mm-hmm. And that one's facing a lot of opposition, largely because it's so big. It's 28 stories, which would be quite a bit bigger than the other stuff around there, even mm-hmm. though it's a fairly urban, dense area. And there's a number of high-rises around there's there. There's a number and of high-rises. Most of them are commercial. Yeah, but I think they're probably max out at 12, 14 stories. I'm not sure exactly, but... Yeah, but there's I don't a think couple there's a nothing, more than that, but not Yeah, much, probably, yeah, but, but not there's much, nothing yeah. 28 stories. Right. But this building would be, it would be all rental, and a lot of it, I can't remember the exact percentage now that I'm thinking of it, but a certain, a minimum percentage of it, maybe it's 20, has to be geared towards this 30 to 80 grand household that is hard for the market to build for on its own. So um, basically what the city's saying is they're going to consider giving developers extra height that they wouldn't normally get or more density, you know, than they would normally get if the developer can guarantee that a certain number of the units, I think it's 20%, are geared and permanently secured at that moderate income range. Right. So to offset the less than market value in some of those units, yeah. but you make it somewhere else. Yeah. Make it up somewhere else. But then so there's this twenty eight story tower twenty eight story tower that's getting a lot of opposition on Broadway, but then not that far, just sort of on the other end of Kitsilano, that was where the, the ghetto comment came in. Um, a local homeowner was telling me that she didn't want the ghetto dropped in Kitsilano. And that was only a five story building. It was a five story apartment building that they were she and some of her neighbors were very up in arms about, and she described it as the ghetto because the units were smaller, and uh, she's saying basically by stacking more people on top of each other in smaller units, it's it's like a ghetto. Um, but a lot of people don't really feel that way. Yeah. No, I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> so it's a very interesting situation that we find ourselves in. So from your vantage point, because you're sitting there looking at city council, mm. do you think that they're doing a good job of addressing this and that they're kind of on top of innovative ways of trying to solve it? Yeah, I think it's a tough job they have. I mean, so far, I could be wrong, but so far, I don't. I think they've approved every rental project that has come before them. Mm-hmm. I don't think they've rejected any rental rezoning. So there's kind of, they're still kind of in the early stages, right? They've only yeah. been sworn in what four or five months, maybe. Yeah. Uh, November was when they were sworn in. Right. So a lot of the stuff coming before them now has probably been in the pipeline for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I think what is going to be really interesting to see is these moderate income. So it's called, the city calls it the Moderate Income Rental Housing Pilot Project, or MERP for short. Good for you for remembering that. (laughs) So, but they always call it, so you'd be in council meetings or in the hallways at City Hall and people keep saying MERP. You keep hearing them say MERP, oh, there's the MERP. It's a weird sound, but yeah, yeah, you hear it a lot, MERP. So these MERP projects, and there's 20 of them that the city kind of, they Opened it up for applications. They got, I think, 60 or something people, be, developers that were interested in getting into the MERP program. Mm-hmm. The city chose 20 for the pilot program. And so this Denny's site on Broadway, this other five-story thing in Kitsilano, those are two of the 20 mm-hmm. MERP pilot round. What will be interesting to see is what city council does with those ones. If they get really staunch neighborhood opposition, but if, if they sort of go with what the angry neighbors are saying and they kibosh these projects and say developers can only build something smaller or if they say we were elected on a 
platform because all of them campaign on housing, housing, housing. Right. There's some slight differences there among the different parties and different councillors and stuff. But uh, certainly the mayor campaigned on a pro- on a promise of building way more housing, mm-hmm. especially rental housing. And, and especially more subsidized housing. Yeah. And in effect, that's what these, at least the 20, I think it's 20% of each building that's geared to these moderate incomes, that's what that is. It's subsidized yeah. housing. Um, subsidized not in the form of the city or the feds or the province giving money to these developers, mm. but they're giving them density, which is a kind of a, that's their incentive or that's their subsidy. Right. So it'll be interesting to see when these projects start coming before council. So currently they're kind of the first ones are in the public hearing stage and uh, they're having open houses. And uh, so one was recently before the urban design panel. Mm -hmm. So they're kind of, that's happening now. These projects were kind of launched under the, the the, the pilot program was launched under the previous council. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was one of the things that staff came up with uh, under the, previous council and then but now it's the new council that's going to have to either upset some neighbors and approve some projects or uh, go with what the neighbors are saying and cancel potentially hundreds of rental units you know i i'm aware of the fact that a lot of people go well i don't want that in my neighborhood maybe put it over there the challenge of course is that if you start to put everybody who's in that kind of housing into one area then you truly are creating a a a community of people who are struggling yeah um and you're you're going to invite other issues and and i believe that the evidence is there that when there is an integrated approach that you're not creating that segregation it works well for all yeah, if you look at the modular housing, I mean, as you say, there's there's one uh, development pretty close to here. Um, are you thinking of the one, the parking lot, though? Is it Larwell Park? There's that no, one. I'm thinking about the one at Beattie and Dunsmuir. Beattie, so there's two that are a yeah. short walk from here. Yeah. But then if you look at a map of the city, what's interesting, and I think a lot of people probably don't even realize this, yeah. about half of the modular mm-hmm. housing program, it's, it's almost like a third of them are downtown, a third of them are on the east side, and a third of them are on the west side. Yeah. A, a decent amount of them are on the west side of the city. Well, there's the one over by the Olympic Sky Train Station right yeah, there in the parking the, lot. In the parking lot. That the, it was a city-owned parking lot, yeah. and uh, I think, yeah, more development will be coming to that mm-hmm. parking, because that's a prime location that we don't need just a big empty parking lot there and the city owns that land and so i imagine some it's underutilized land anyway for sure yeah. and it's right beside a rapid transit station so yeah. it's perfect but uh so there's that one there but then there's also the ones up on heather in and then there's the one in marple which was kind of one of the first ones that's right and there was tremendous the opposition that was the one that had the biggest opposition yeah but i've talked to the vpd since then like after it had been in operation for a full year and they've got a full year of stats in terms of how many distress calls or problem calls have the police got and the police showed that numbers with me i can't remember the exact stats but basically the police said these numbers are nothing we're worried about it's not unlike the numbers you would see at an apartment building yeah there are a couple distress calls a couple of missing person calls but nothing huge Uh maybe one or two littering calls just there were nothing the police told me this is nothing we're concerned about this is not out of line with just an apartment any normal market apartment building Mm -hmm. that would have a couple of calls a year so yeah I, i think um even in Marpole, uh, where there was that initial fierce yeah. neighborhood opposition, more than we saw any other neighborhood, um, it seems like there haven't been big problems there. So, Well, I'm reminded of Turning Point. I don't know if you're familiar with Turning Point, but it is a, uh, it's housing for people who are in recovery. And uh, a fascinating program started organically by recovering addicts and alcoholics. Every time they go into a neighborhood, there's huge yeah. neighborhood resistance. Yeah. 
Well, and then after a couple of years, uh, everybody's forgotten that yeah. they're there. Yeah. Um, housing is such an important need, and I think that when you give somebody a place to stay, yeah. not everybody is going to be 100% perfect, but the majority of people go, oh, thankfully, I've got a place to put my head down at night. Yeah, it's pretty powerful when you hear from some of the people that have gotten into the modular housing units. And um, uh, Gene Swanson, who's the longtime yes. anti-poverty activist who's been in the downtown east side and for a long time now, just for the first time ever, she's... A council member, so she's kind of, uh, and she. One, the one thing she says is she keeps hearing from the people who have gotten into the modular housing units is they feel like they've won the lottery. Now I did a tour of uh, the most recent um, uh, development, the yeah. temporary modular housing beside the Georgia Viaduct there on the edge of Strathcona. I did a bit of a tour right before it. People started moving in when it was finished being built, and they were kind of putting the finishing touches. And I went on a bit of a tour through there with people from the city and from PHS. Uh, which was oper the operator of it. And that's, I mean, it, they're very modest. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's almost like sort of student housing, but, but just for these people who move in there, a lot of whom have maybe been in shelters for a long time. Because uh, being in a shelter, at least you're not on the street or sleeping in a park, but, but it's not, not necessarily a safe. You're not necessarily safe. And there's a lot of people who prefer sleeping on the street or in a park or in an alley over sleeping in shelters because shelters come with their own risks and problems. And so for these people, even if they've been sleeping indoors for years, even if they're not sleeping outdoors, to get from a shelter into modular housing where you've got your own door, your own door that locks, you've got a little area with a sort of little kitchenette, you've got a bathroom with a door that locks. That was, it was a really powerful thing. I was talking to these folks from PHS, and it's something we've heard from some mm. people who have moved into these places. Some of these people have not had their own bathroom in years and maybe decades, maybe their whole life. They've never had a bathroom. People who grew up in a, a sort of the care system, youth yeah. and care, and then maybe from there have had really hard lives. Yeah. And some people... Um, that's what the PHS folks were telling us is like some people, when they move in, they, uh, the first thing they do, they go into the bathroom, lock the door, or maybe have a shower and they've just never, they maybe have never showered by themselves in their life. Yeah. Like, and the, the other thing that I thought that was quite poignant was, um, I didn't hear this from a resident, uh, directly, but from the gal that works for PHS was saying that some residents, when they move in, they sleep on the floor for the first few nights or the first little while. The beds are quite they're, you know, they're small twin beds, but they're comfy and they're good beds. But sometimes they sleep on the floor for the few, first few nights because they don't want to get too comfortable in that home because they're afraid maybe it's not going to be real. Maybe it's wow. not going to be theirs. And they just don't want to get too at home. And then once after it kicks <clears> in that this <throat> is their home and that they can stay there, it's, uh, I think it's pretty good way for them to start getting the rest of their life in order. That's the idea. So <clears throat> I know that you are focused on City Hall a lot, but are you going to be doing a series on homelessness at all? Because if you are, I'd like you to come back uh, and talk to us about that because I've got something lined up with a reporter from the Seattle Times oh. who did a big series about homelessness there. And it would be interesting to see yeah. what the comparison is between Seattle and Vancouver. They actually have a whole... Team, I think it's maybe four reporters who yeah. just report on homelessness. Yeah, they've got like a homelessness unit, a homeless beat, and I think it's funded in part by some philanthropic organizations, maybe the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation or some yeah. philanthropic foundation that helps fund this thing. And they just report on homelessness. I think homelessness is an even bigger problem in Seattle than it is here. Yes, I think there's that's a lot true. of parallels. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, there's a reporter from the Seattle Times. His name is Vernal Coleman. Was the guy who called me, mm -hmm. and he reports on homelessness there. He actually ended up coming up to Vancouver. He, he was, his questions were all about 
the modular housing. Like this was probably a year ago. Um, he was, how does it work? How did city, what did city hall do to make it happen? What did the provincial government do to make it happen? How did, what was the opposition? So I was kind of telling him about it. He came up here, uh, spent some time here and, uh, talked to people here, mayor, the politicians and mm -hmm. folks. And he wrote a big long feature about kind of what can Seattle learn from Vancouver's experiment with modular housing. It was interesting. Um, but yeah, I, I'm definitely interested in writing more stuff about homelessness. I think it's a really interesting and is super important part of when we talk about housing, people who don't have housing are, you know, our neighbors, our fellow Vancouverites who don't have this, don't mm -hmm. have any kind of housing or don't have stable housing um, are a really important part of the picture. That's right. They become totally disenfranchised. Okay, well then, let's if, if we can make that happen, let, let's let's work towards that. Thanks yeah. for coming in and sharing your insights on where we're at uh, across a broad spectrum of areas related to to rental. It's yeah. really informative, and I like the the fact that you kind of took us behind the scenes. Thanks a lot. Great. Thanks, Stu. Joining me now is David Hutniak of Landlord BC. David, welcome. Thank you. Rental, 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 rental. Like everywhere you go, people are talking about rental. But do we do we get an accurate picture? Because so much of what we hear is about the city of Vancouver. As a matter of fact, on the same episode that you're on, Dan Fumano from the Vancouver Province was talking about you know what the city of Vancouver is doing, and they're they're trying to be innovative. They're trying to meet that need. They're trying to do all sorts of things. And even stale, the cost of rental housing is exorbitant. If we look outside of like not being just Vancouver centric, what does it look as we look around the region um, as far as housing is concerned? Is it as bad everywhere or are there areas where it's better? Uh, and what are some of the challenges in, in some of those different regions? Well, sadly, it's uh, bad everywhere. Uh, when you talk about rental housing. Right. And, uh, you know, I think the important thing to understand is to put some perspective. So most rental housing, most units of rental housing in, in BC are in that secondary market, which is basement suites, investor condos. Uh, so, you know, that's fine. They've, fortunately, we've had that. But in terms of long, a long-term solution for rental housing, to have that secure long-term rental housing, we need to build what's called purpose-built rental, apartment buildings exclusively for rental. And that's just not happening because the environment here is just not conducive to building it. But there was a period in, in the history, I guess, of the Lower Mainland where people were building purpose-built rental housing with, a, with an eye to a long-term investment. What happened? How come they stopped doing that? Well, it's interesting that you asked that. I mean, there's some myths around how that was happening. So everyone talks about the mid-80s to, uh, well, I guess mid-80s, mid-90s. There was the MERB program from mm -hmm. the feds, a tax program. But uh, in actual fact, we actually we did a white paper recently to dispel the myth. That program was not the uh, unqualified success that everybody keeps talking about. Mm -hmm. It did have a lot of units generate, uh, generate out of it, but it was because those purpose-built rental buildings were actually stratified. That took all the risk out of it. The feds allowed these uh -huh. guys to get the tax break, but allow these units in these single own owner buildings to be stratified. So that's why they got built. We uh, actually built a ton okay. of purpose-built rental in British Columbia in the 50s, 60s, and, and to the mid-70s. Right. And during that period of time, we had no rent control here. We had no price control. And so we had a growing population. We have 
had immigrants coming here, but we were able to build the rental supply to meet that uh, that demand. Mm -hmm. And that's where we need to be uh, today again, and that's something that we are actually espousing in terms of, you know, uh, we need a legislative framework to allow or encourage developers and pension funds to start building uh, secure purpose-built rental here. So do you think that it was rent control then that started to change the appetite towards building uh, purpose-built rental buildings. Absolutely. That in combination with the fact that the Fed's, the Strata, uh, Strata uh, Act came into effect, and then uh, the mid-'80s in particular, the Fed's basically said, if you own a condo from a capital gains, gains perspective, it's like a single-family home. Mm -hmm. And that basically killed purpose-built rental for 40 years. Everybody built condos because they were less risky, they were more profitable, and uh, we basically neglected uh, a critical housing typology for almost four decades. Well, can you envision... Um Rent controls going away at the moment. Well, no, I, I can't. I no, and I'm not even. Become... I'm not even espousing that. In terms of, uh, for the you know, uh, for the current existing rental stock, it's it's would be uh, untenable for this this government to con consider that. And we're not suggesting that they do that tomorrow. Right. But we are saying to them, we're looking at other jurisdictions. Oregon is a great example. They actually just put rent control in place. But what they've said is for newly constructed purpose-built rental, uh, that they will exempt it from rent controls. Uh, Seattle uh, has no rent controls. They are building 14, 15, 16,000 units of purpose-built rental every year. Uh, uh, so but that's only in the last couple of years, right? No, in that's Seattle. In the last, uh, basically, it, the, this all started happening in Seattle in 2015. And every but, yeah. year since then, they've been building that kind of scale. To the point where rents, as I understand it, are actually going down. Yeah, because now they have almost a double-digit vacancy rate. And and, wow. and I just want to make it clear here, you know, uh, I nor our organization, we're not zealots about rent control here. Right. Like we, we actually were really sensitive to the challenges renters are facing. Uh, but and, and like I said, this is why in terms of the existing rental, you know, we understand it would be very challenging for the province to even consider that. In fact, they've made it more difficult. They've, 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 uh, you know, reduced the maximum allowable increase right. last September, which, which is another negative in terms of encouraging anybody to build this this housing typology. We're saying let's just look. Ontario is a great example. Mm -hmm. I mean, they've instituted uh, that policy: no rent control on new newly constructed purpose-built rental, and that's frankly where rental developers from British Columbia are going. That's where they're building rental, purpose-built rental. So the money, the money will go where the opportunity is, you know, mm -hmm. uh, is, is the greatest or where the risk is, is mitigated. And it's really unfortunate. Like, I mean, we are in a situation here where, you know, we, we need to build supply. We yes. need to get to uh, you know a three, four, five percent vacancy rate. That's going to be good for renters. It's going to be good for landlords. It's going to be good for our economy, and and you know this the the BC government actually deserves huge credit for what they've done. They've thrown you know significant funds at social housing, the temporary modular housing. Uh, they've made some constructive changes to the Residential Tenancy Act. Most of them with our support, frankly, but there's a whole cohort of renters the 90% of the rental renter universe that no one is doing anything anything for them and and there's no supports or incentives uh, or a legislative framework to encourage the building of market 
purpose-built rental. It's just not there. So when we take a look at what they're doing in New Westminster, for instance, council goes, oh, yeah, no, 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 we're going to bat for renters. And yet the response from builders is, oh, no, you're not. As a matter of fact, we're going to take you to court. Yeah, well, that, that's, that's a specific situation. This is in regard to the uh, rental-only zoning and, and how, how they basically uh, attacked these six specific units. Mm-hmm. Long topic. I don't think I want to get into the weeds on that. Right. What what uh, New West is trying to do, and, and frankly, you know, we should all be concerned about this, is that that existing stock, that old rental stock, is is nearing the end of its functional life. Without question, it is the more affordable rental because people have been living in those units for, you know, 10, 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we need to find a framework here that will encourage the owners of those buildings to invest in them to, to you know, they, they're not necessarily safe anymore in terms mm-hmm. of uh, from a seismic perspective, et cetera. So, so the, what we're seeing, unfortunately, is a small cohort of people who are new investors in these buildings doing uh, what are called renovations. That's not something that, you know, we, we denounce. We don't think uh, that mm-hmm. that is necessary. It's not best practices in terms of how we do our business. Right. But, you know, it's, it's, this is the challenge, you know, uh, the cities and municipalities, uh, provincial government, our industry. We would all like to find a mechanism to make it financially viable to not just maintain those buildings but invest in them. But many of them are basically beyond beyond their functional life, and so mm-hmm. that's a whole other whole other. You know, yeah, it's it's almost a unique circumstance. It is almost a unique circumstance. But it goes back to my original comment: we haven't built purpose-built rental for forty years. Right. So so this is it's it's a supply matter. I mean, I know, you know, there's a lot of supply deniers, but when mm-hmm. it comes to uh, secure purpose-built rental. It is a supply issue. That will solve the problem. <laughs> and so then, even though this may be a unique case in Newest Mister, it is sending a signal, isn't it, that to developers are going, mm, too tough. Well, absolutely. It's, 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 it's a negative. You know, this is the, the irony is that uh, New West and myself, uh, you know, I speak in many different panels, what have you. Uh, we were while pointing at New West for some really progressive policy to encourage the building of purpose-built rental. Uh, What has happened there in the last uh, handful of months has put a real chill on that whole market, uh, and and it was unnecessary. So we'll see where that all ends up. But again, uh, everyone understands that that this is a challenge, that we need solutions around it. I think what they've done really was uh, heavy-handed and and unnecessary. So it's, it's very disappointing. So what about the city of Vancouver? And I asked this because Dan Fumano goes, you know, on the whole, they are trying to tackle this problem. They're trying to move things forward. They're, you know, uh, coming up with a wide variety of innovative programs to get some of this housing into the marketplace. From your perspective, are they doing a good job in the city of Vancouver? And is there something that other councils can gain from what's happening there? Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, the city of Vancouver, the Rental 100 program in particular, which is under attack right now, you know, was leading edge and it it still is. Mm -hmm. And, and, it definitely has resulted in some new purpose-built rental. Uh, and if we didn't have that program, uh, the three, 4,000 units, whatever the number is, that have come out of that so far would not exist today. So that's a good thing. Absolutely. It's yeah. a good thing. And we need that program to continue. We need it enhanced. Uh, but again, I go back to the fact that the provincial government needs to look at uh, the legislative framework 
and and that's why what we're suggesting is for newly constructed purpose-built rental exempt that class mm -hmm. from from price controls. Uh, we're saying for like 20 years, just a window of opportunity here, basically to get the pension funds and the developers to build that housing typology, and that's going to basically mm -hmm. help the cities and municipalities. I mean, they have a limited scope in terms of what they can do to encourage this. They don't have, you know, deep pockets. The other thing is what we're proposing does not require taxpayer money. All we're saying is get out of the way. Make it make it basically legislatively uh, feasible for us to do this. We're not asking for taxpayer handouts here. When it comes to the, the development of property, I had long thought that, you know, the, the greatest amount of control or power uh, rested within each different city or municipal jurisdiction. You're saying, mm, nope, uh, the, the real bottleneck here is at the provincial level. What happens then if the feds also decide that they're going to get involved? Well, we need all levels of government. Yeah. Each level of government has uh, created a bottleneck unique to their uh, you know. <laughs> area of responsibility. Yeah, area so of can... responsibility. Yeah. Thank you very much. So, in, in the city, in the cities, and municipalities, it's zoning and you know uh, approval processes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So those need to be fixed up. And there's some things uh, that density bonusing, simple things that they can do within their purview. Uh, provincial government definitely, legislatively, I mean, they can all collectively do something on, mm -hmm. on on taxes and property taxes. And really, the federal government, uh, you know. They, too, deserve a lot of credit for the national housing strategy, bringing social housing on, on, on track, et cetera. But, I mean, in terms of our industry, as a, if I build a rental, uh, purpose-built rental building right now, uh, I have to, and I, I'm retaining it for my portfolio, mm -hmm. I have to fake a transaction. Uh, to fake basically take a, a transaction, pretend I'm selling that brand new building that is occupied by tenants so I can write a big GST check to the federal government. This is, again, something else that we're, we're advocating to have changed because the federal government, the uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, before he became prime minister, promised that he was going to eliminate GST on new purpose-built rental. It's something called self-supply. Again, it's it's an you know probably not enough time to get into it here, but this is something we're advocating for right now and chasing them very hard because there's an election coming up in October. It's a broken promise. It's something they can fix simply, and so, it would have an impact. Absolutely, it would basically mean that if a guy has a piece of property, he's going to build a condo here. That that one change alone will likely cause him to build a purpose-built rental uh, because that 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 is an easy fix right there that they could do. Okay, I'm going. Okay, exactly. How does that work? I want to know how that works because very, very simply, it's it's an anomaly in GST. It's called it's called self supply. That's what the what's the term is. And so, like again, I'll go back very 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 quickly here. So I'm building a new purpose built rental building. I am not selling that building. I am retaining it for myself. I'm going to rent it out and manage it for the next 60 to 100 years. Right. Okay, so I finished building that building. Yep. Uh, I have tenants occupying it now. They've come in. Mm -hmm. At that point, I have to get an appraiser who comes and ass assesses the market value of the building, and I have to write a check to the federal government for GST on the market value of that building. I have, Even though you're not selling I'm not it? I'm not selling it. I am keeping it for myself. Yes, so I'm, where's the money for that supposed to come from? 
I have to write the check for it, man. Just out of the pocket? Absolutely. Of the, of the this is a thing. This comes right out of my bottom line. This is why, you know, <laughs> when I say, to, to answer your earlier question, would this have an impact? Absolutely. Well, I don't, I can't understand why somebody would want to even enter into that market. You'd go, I have to do what? Uh, no, I don't well, think so. Well, this is the thing. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously when you look at your pro forma, you're looking at perhaps you were fortunate in the land cost acquisition, what have you. But, you know, land is not cheap here. Construction costs are not cheap. I mean, there's no one magic bu bullet in all of this. There's a series of, of opportunities for all levels of government to help us extract cost. Mm -hmm. That's all we're really saying. And, and even, again, the legislative uh, change that we're espousing here for new construction, new purpose-built rental, exempting those buildings from rent control for 20 years, that's a, that's a cost barrier. If that's removed, suddenly there's a whole lot of, whole lot of risk mitigated. It starts making financial sense to build it. A anybody listening to you? <laughs> Your laughter would suggest no. Besides yourself, <laughs> no. It, it's well on the on the on the um, GST. Oh, you know, uh, I'm an eternal optimist. I we we're 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 definitely talking to the finance minister and and senior senior uh, bureaucrats who are uh, and 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 really it's a it's a political issue right. at this point in time. Uh, we'll see. There's still a long runway, uh, but we're putting a lot of pressure. We have a, a number of really good uh, stakeholders from both ends of the spectrum here mm -hmm. uh, working with us as well. So we'll so we'll see. Uh, uh, you know, they, they, they say, well, we don't want to set precedent. Well, you already have with this, this ridiculous anomaly. So yeah. this is not a precedent. This is correcting an, an anomaly. So we'll see what happens with that. In terms of uh, the provincial government exempting uh, a new cons newly constructed purpose-built rental from rent control, that, this is a discussion. This is a, this is a process here as well. Uh, we have this in front of the, uh, the housing minister right now. We have a great relationship with her. Mm -hmm. I, I know it's, it's a challenging one for her, but we, you know, we're going to continue to sort of, uh, we're, we're very focused on being concerned Constructive. We're looking for solutions, and 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 you know her government has a goal to build 114,000 units of rental housing over the next 10 years. Well, this could go a long way to help them her meet government, that objective. Her government, her yeah. government, the CEO of BC Housing, in about about a week and a half ago at a at a presentation he made, very explicitly said, "There's no way we're going to achieve this unless we partner with the private sector." Okay, so then let's, let's partner with the private sector. Let's but do it. But you have to make it attractive. The private sector is not going to put their money yeah, into the something that we're, we're, there's no return on. The, exactly. Yeah. And so people keep talking about, well, tax breaks and, you know, that's taxpayer money. It's hard for governments to give private sector developers, you know, a check on, on the taxpayer dime. It's, we get that. And we're not even asking for that. We're just saying, okay, just create an environment that will take that risk, but, but create an environment where it's worth taking that risk. And the important thing here in all of this, it's not local developers or anything, it's pension funds. It's the, it's the lenders who ultimately dictate whether or not we go forward or not. And they're, they're the ones who are saying, meh, not so much. Wow. Okay, so can we come back and have a report card six, eight, ten months from now uh, to see whether or not there's been any movement on this? Because I, I would this love is fascinating to do that. because there's a couple of elements here that I was completely unaware of, and uh, that just goes to show how complex that the program, whole issue. Don't let people sell you on that MERB program from the mid '80s. Okay, uh, I, we have I, we have a white paper. You should take a perusal of it. It basically. Uh, it's a myth that it was successful. It was only successful because 
all those units were stratified. And to tie back to New West, the six buildings that are in, in a lawsuit right now, they were build, built under the MERB program. Oh, my gosh. They are all stratified. They're single owner, but each unit is stratified. So that's what that's what uh, the city of New West has gone after. They they basically have 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 downzoned those properties. Not that these owners mm -hmm. they've owned these buildings for I think forty or forty five years, always rental, and they have no intention of doing anything different. But then the city of New West decided, oh no, we're we're going to take some action here, and and in effect say, yes, you currently have a right to sell those indiv individual units. We understand you have no plans to, but we want to make sure you never do. So they've uh, basically, you know, downzone those properties, and that's why there's litigation pending. Well, let's hope that we have the benefit of enough experience that we can start to come up with solutions that are going to meet our current needs and our long-term needs, and most importantly, provide rental housing for people who need it. We have, what, 40 thousand plus people a year coming into metro vancouver most of them are renters five thousand amazon workers coming here in the next less than two years mm, and their families where they, where are they going to live now i guess you know secure rental is what we focus on this is where purpose-built rental uh, the security of tenure that's the long long-term solution here and that's why we're uh, espousing the need for a ton of purpose-built rental we we need 14,000, 15,000 units a year, every year for the next 10 years minimum. Wow. Well, thanks for coming in and sharing this. No, I really appreciate the invitation. Thank you, David. And that wraps up today's show. Now, just before I go, I want to encourage you to take in a couple of other Vancouver Sun and Province podcasts. The first is White Towel, hosted by Paul Chapman. Paul and a series of guest hosts bring you everything you want to know and need about the Vancouver Canucks. For all you news junkies about things political in Victoria, you're going to want to tune in to In the House, hosted by Mike Smith and Rob Shaw. Thank you for tuning in on Apple Podcasts, thevancouversun.com, and on theprovince.com. And, of course, on the Vancouver Sun's YouTube channel. Become a subscriber, because you don't want to miss an episode. As well, I want to acknowledge Arnold Chang, Gordon Gibson, and Derek Hader, without whom this show would not be possible. What a great team. I'm Stuart McNish. Thanks for joining us on Housing Matters, the Vancouver Real Estate Show. See you next time. Mm -hmm.